Let's turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're jumping back into our series. Uh, we preach through books of the Bible here at Redeemer Church and love that God's Word speaks to us every week. And we come to an interesting chapter uh, this morning. The Corinthian church, as we know, has, has these heights of God's favor and grace and, and his, uh, his salvation of them. They've been enriched in every way and speech and all knowledge in Christ Jesus. They are saints in Christ Jesus. And yet there are problems in this church. And Paul is addressing these. Uh, and we come across one today that's, that is, indeed is serious and will be instructive for us. So let's read God's word. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He writes, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. We're going to continue through this entire chapter, but let's pause here and let's pray. Father, we already detect the, the seriousness uh, of the situation uh, there and then, but know, Lord, that because of sin that remains, though, Jesus, you have conquered sin and death on the cross as we have sung, uh, we know that, that this word is, is for us as well to learn from. So Holy Spirit, I invite you to come and soften our hearts to hear what you want us to hear and ultimately change us. Lord, we don't want to look into your word and walk away unchanged. So do all this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So after our Christmas break, we do jump back into the world of Corinth, and this is the church that we've been studying. We enter back into the Mediterranean world of the first century in Greece. You remember that Paul planted this church uh, during his second missionary journey, when he came over to Europe, starting in Philippi, the man from Macedonia, and then he traveled all the way down to Corinth, which is in Achaia in southern Greece. And do you remember these maps? We, we showed these at the beginning. Uh, this first one, this is where Corinth is, just to reference us again. It's been a while since we've been in Corinthians, but there you can see it in the middle of the Mediterranean. If you get the close-up, the next one, you remember how Corinth is, is really important as it sits between these two waterways. It's, it's straddled, certainly, by the Sardonic Gulf and the Gulf of Corinth. Uh, the Roman poet, poet Horace wrote in praise of the twin seed, Corinth. Uh, and, and therefore, if, if you, if you uh, zoom back out, you can see how important Corinth is uh, in between Rome and Asia. This is right in the middle. You would, you would certainly travel through uh, Corinth. So when when Paul arrived in the early 50s, uh, Corinth was nothing less than a booming city. It was a melting pot at the center of the Roman Empire. It was bursting at the seams, economically, culturally, religiously, and of course, 
sinfully. Legend has it, if you remember, that uh, a thousand temple prostitutes would descend into the city each night from the temple of Aphrodite. And that's, that might be an exaggeration or maybe referencing a different time. But sexual immorality and deviance was rampant in Corinth. It was known for this, and certainly it was rampant in the rest of the ancient world where sex was connected to power. And, and the sexual menu in the first century, the sexual options within the Roman Empire at that time were many and hideous and unmentionable and disgusting and dehumanizing and extensive. In those days, sexually speaking, it seemed like everything goes except for what was happening in a church in Corinth. Think about this. A pagan and over-sexualized society said, you can do it all. But not that. Not that. And the that, which was considered so out of bounds, was again happening in a church in Corinth. Look at verse 1 again. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So the pagans who tolerate almost everything didn't tolerate incest. And the truth is, neither does God. So we have this necessary passage and correction. I think a way to walk through this is to look at the diagnosis and then to look at the prescription, and then to look at the authority of the prescriber. And then lastly, there are some further instructions that he gives in this chapter. So the, the diagnosis, what's going on here? What's the problem? What's the prescription? The answer. And then Paul appeals to, to the authority of the prescriber and a few more thoughts. So we just saw the diagnosis. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among them, a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. A man has his father, father's wife, and Paul calls out this man who is actively sexually involved with his father's wife. There's no mistake about this. And the word that he uses here actually indicates that it was likely his stepmother. And there's as you can imagine, a number of scenarios that commentators wonder about with regard to, to what the actual situation was uh, with regard to this father, whether he was alive or not, and this stepmother and how old she might have been. But what's worse is that this relationship, this sexual immorality, this incest that's not even tolerated among the pagans is an ongoing situation. And and not only is it an ongoing situation, but, but Paul is actually even indignant by their response to this. Look at it again. Actually reported sexual immorality among you of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. This is verse 2. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. That's their response to this. It's not only tolerated, but he says you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn. Now listen, Paul has already addressed the arrogance that, that underlie the divisions. He spent four chapters. We've, we've discussed the, the divisions that existed among them. I follow Paul. I follow Paulus. I follow 
Cephas, I follow Jesus, this, this anti-gospel division where Christ came to shed his blood to unite us, as Alex said earlier. The Corinthians are breaking off into factions. Jesus has been removed from the center of their church and their reality, and, and they're arrogant, they're boasting, and their arrogance seeps into this category as well. Their, their attitude is, is either just an, an arrogant tolerance or maybe even a celebration of a serious sin, and Paul is indignant. And yet, the diagnosis is clear. There is unrepentant, active, hardened sexual immorality within the church. And by the way, not this isn't a kind of... of the, the sexual failures that we sadly can fall into as, as a, a function of that, that fight, that war within us between the spirit and the flesh, the failures that, that exist among us that are accompanied uh, with the, the, the categories of sin and temptation and repentance and the desire to flee and to fight against the sin that so easily entangles us. Again, you got to think about what's going on here. This is active and accepted and even boasted in wickedness inside the church. So this is where Paul then moves very quickly to the to the prescription. He said, as instead of instead of tolerating and welcoming this man, Paul says, "Remove this man. Remove this man." It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Look at what he says: the kind that is tolerated, not even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Prescription is very clear. It's not, it's not questionable. It's not ambiguous. Let him who has done this be removed, cast out. Paul here is appealing for church discipline. He's appealing for excommunication on the charge, again, of active and unrepentant sexual immorality. And you can see how, how he appeals to his authority Though absent in the body, he is there in spirit, which, which I think means what we think. I don't, I don't think that this is mystical. I think it simply speaks of the deep connection and responsibility he, he feels, like though away he is with them. We know this phrase, don't we? You go ahead. I'm, I'm not going to be able to be there, but I'm, I'm with you in spirit. Or, you know, the folks have gotten sick over the last few weeks, and the gatherings at at Christmas that you've missed or community groups or, or whatever it is. You know how it is to say, yeah, I can't be there, but I'm, I'm there. I'm with you in spirit. I think on Monday night, there was a strange, like countrywide with you in spirit. 
when DeMar Hamlin took the hit and they had to revive him. I was watching the game, saw it happen. Maybe you did too. Saw all the coverage go kind of dark and they didn't know what to do. There was certainly a sense as they kept coming back to that stadium. It almost felt like all of America, the, the, our spirits were with you. There was such a concern about what was happening there. I think, I think Paul is saying something like that. It's, there's, there's an irony, though, here, because he's saying that, that though you are actually there presently in body, you guys are doing nothing about this. But I'm not there presently, but I'm with you in spirit. And while I'm with you in spirit, according to the authority given to him as an apostle and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, the judgment that he's already pronounced. He commands them. When you gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved. Look, it's in 1 Corinthians 5, brothers and sisters, that we see the church's responsibility and warrant to discipline believers by removal. Now, Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 18, of course. He's talking about this, this appeal process with regard to seeing someone in sin, and, and there's this escalating process. You, know, you go to them, just the two of you, and then if they don't listen to you, what do you do? Well, you go with somebody else. And if they don't listen to you, the whole idea is, well, we'll bring more people to, to appeal to the brother or sister. This is what Jesus says in verse 17. At the end of all this, he says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, this is someone in sin, in clear sin, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You hear the, the language of, of a change of status, a, a kind of removal. And here Paul appeals to his authority, to the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he adds this part about delivering him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Which, wow, right? Like, that's intense. And yet I think this isn't really as mystical as we might think. I don't think that, that Paul is, is saying that, that he would be killed by Satan or destroyed. When Paul talks about the flesh, he's always talking about that, that inner world that is in opposition to God. The, the contrast is always between the spirit and the flesh. I think what Paul is saying is remove him and return him back into the realm that Satan oversees and operates within. In other words, remove him from the circle of protection found in Christ and back into the open season from Satan and his ways of destruction that occur through the consequences of repeated sin, sin that always destroys us. Look, the enemy comes to, to steal and to kill and to destroy through all of his means as the prince of the power of the air, as the ruler of this world. So there's this, this redemptive action that seems so counterintuitive. 
hand him over into the realm where, where Satan rules for the destruction of his flesh, somehow that there would be a, a defeating of the sins of the flesh that come through the consequences and the destruction of sin in that person's life. And then there's this redemptive idea that's connected so that his flesh, his sinful nature might be destroyed, but that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting, but it shouldn't be surprising to us because discipline in the Bible always carries a redemptive hope. All discipline, it's not, it's not pleasant, it's, it's terrible, according to Hebrews, but for those who are trained by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You know that it's a loving father and mother that discipline their children. The opposite of love, in some cases, in parenting is indifference, not hatred. Discipline has this redemptive hope even here. Even in, in Jesus' process, too, in Matthew 18, the hope in each escalating part of that is that the person will listen. If there's one thing that stops this immediately, and it's, and it's just a, a receptive, responsive, corrected, repentant person. The, the same idea, I think, exists here. What, what seems like a cruel thing for a church to do, to remove someone, to no longer have fellowship, to, as you gather under the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to hand this person over to the enemy who destroys lives and souls, Maybe pictured in the prodigal son story, where, where the father let him go. The father let him do his thing outside of the protection of the home. He, he went and did his journey and then ran into the blender of sin and its consequences. Right? There was something about what he experienced that eventually became redemptive in his life and brought him back to the Father. Maybe that's a, an image of, of what God's heart is with regard to this process, at least the redemptive goal found in discipline. So we are talking about church discipline here. 1 Corinthians 5 is about church discipline, which from a, a more forensic standpoint is the action of a church given authority by God to maintain who demonstrates the true marks of a genuine believer. Now listen, we, we know that because of the gospel and because of the free gift of grace, we know that, that our actions, our behavior, it never earns our standing before God. That's, that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we don't earn our standing before God. Our, our behaviors and actions don't earn anything from God. But what we do know is that our actions simply prove the reality of our standing in Christ before God. Our actions and our behaviors don't ever earn our new life in Christ, indwelt by his spirit. Our actions and behaviors simply prove the presence of the spirit of Jesus freely given to us and the resulting transformation of our hearts and who we love 
and who we serve. Our actions demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit that lives within us, which also comes, by the way, with a holy hatred of sin and a desire to, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Faith without works is dead in this sense. Because of sin that remains until we are fully redeemed, in every true believer there is a war inside between the flesh and the spirit. This is what scripture teaches us. The question becomes, what if there's no war inside of somebody? What if there's no war? I think we all know that that every human has the capacity to say something about themselves outwardly that just isn't true inwardly. And we, of course, know that only God can know someone's heart and the reality of what's happening inside the heart. Until that which is hidden comes to the fore, especially through active, unapologetic, unrepentant, God-defying, Christ-ignoring, spirit-grieving sin. Sin that is clearly condemned in Scripture, and yet boldly and unapologetically and unchangingly practiced. And when that happens, the church must do something about that. The church, that is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The the church in sincerity and truth must affirm who genuinely carries and demonstrates the marks of Christ and those who don't. Look, the church of God does not have the option to call something that is not as though it is. And so, just so you know, the church Historic has considered church discipline as one of the marks of a true church. A church not willing to remove unrepentant sinners was not considered a true church. And a confession like the Belgic Confession would encourage you to only participate in a church that, one, preach the word of God, two, faithfully practice the ordinances, and three, practice church discipline. So we see this, this here. This is where we find this. See this command to to remove, to cast out, to hand over to Satan. And, And wonderfully, first it seems there's this possible redemption in the end that their spirit might be saved, but then there's also this connection to the character and integrity and holiness required among God's people within his church. Let's move on. This is verse six. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Over COVID, uh, Marie and I got into the um, the British Baking Show. What that? What's that called? You know what I'm talking about, right? The Great Great British Baking Show. Is that what it is? 
and it was fascinating to us, right? And maybe, I don't know what you watched it for whatever reason, that's what struck us. And we would binge watch at some nights, you know, some of these episodes and we just laughed our heads off at some of the, the creations, but at the same time, it's really fascinating what they're, what they're creating. So I thought it would be fun uh, to, to figure out how to make bread and how to make artisan bread. And so that was one of my COVID things. I got into it and, uh, and I made bread and I, I still do. Um, I'm not that great at it, but, but I did learn right about leaven and how that works and the importance. And not that I didn't know about that before, uh, but that's the illustration that Paul is using here. He's talking about, he's talking about leaven. And I think that we all get it. I think we, we know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The small amount of poolish or the few grams of leaven works its way into the entire loaf. We know this. Uh, it, and as a matter of fact, it, it can't not. And so what Paul is certainly saying generally is, is, guys, this is how sin works. This man has the ability, like, like leaven, just a little leaven, Brothers and sisters, leavens the entire lump. This man has the ability like, like a cancer to infect the entire body. But it's not just that in general. It's, it's deeper than that because did you notice that this man is actually referred to as the old leaven? It's not just leaven, but he's referred to as the old leaven, and then Paul refers to the Passover, this, this Passover celebration and, and festival. Of the, the Passover commemorated God's greatest saving act in the Old Testament when they were enslaved in Egypt. And the 10th the plague came where, where everyone was going to be destroyed. The angel of death was going to destroy everyone unless you were found inside of a dwelling that was covered by the blood of a lamb, which was a substitute. And if that were you, then the wrath of God was going to be diverted from you and you were going to be saved. God said, when I see the blood, the blood of the sacrifice, the blood of the lamb, I will pass over that dwelling place. And everyone found inside would be saved from the wrath of God. The, the lamb died so that they could live. And this feast and festival every year, of course, points to Jesus. Just like Paul said, Christ is our Passover lamb. We too are saved only because of a substitutionary sacrifice. The lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world through his death on the cross in order to save us from the wrath of God. If we find ourselves inside of Christ where his blood covers us, then the wrath of God will pass over us and we will be saved and given eternal life. The full forgiveness of all of our sins and restored back to God. This is what Jesus came to do, right? And this is the good news. The thing is, if you follow what Paul is saying, he says that there is therefore, because of the gospel, because of the all things new, because of the new life and identity we have now in Jesus Christ, which we remember, by the way, in the meal that we just shared in communion, He's saying there's no place for the old leaven in that. This is what I mean. If you read about the, the Passover festival in the Old Testament, they were required to get rid of all of the leaven in their homes. 
There was to be no leaven anywhere within their home. They had to clear it all out, which means, A, there was no 29-year-old sourdough starter in Israel during that time because they were required by God's law to get rid of all of it. But you think, well, why? Well, that's because the unleavened bread was the all things new at that point. The unleavened bread was going to be that bread, which would provide the leaven going forward. It represented an old versus the new. You were not allowed to bring the old leaven into the new celebration of the festival. Look how how Paul must have been thinking about this. Exodus 12 verse 15 says, seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For, listen, if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be what? What does it say? Cut off from Israel. This is verse Verse 19 says, for seven days, he reiterates, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leaven, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. Do you see what, what, what's going on in Paul's heart and mind as he thinks about the now people of God? But brothers and sisters, this hasn't changed. No old leaven, no Old leaven from the old life. The old leaven of sin and malice and deceit has no place in all that is new. In the new DNA of the people of God, the new organic makeup of those who are regenerated by God through the gospel, through faith and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we, as we remember him, even in this meal, how many of your crackers were unleavened this morning? You ever wonder why that is? Well, it's not mystical or, or magical, but it's, it's an attempt to get at something like this. There's, there's no place for the old leaven of your old life in rebellion toward God and stuck in sin and willfully rejoicing in your sin. There's no place for that in this new life in Christ. Get rid of the old leaven, he says, so that you can be the new lump. Let us celebrate the the festival with the unleavened bread, the new identity that we have in Christ. Look, it's it's powerful and fascinating. There's no place for the sins of your old life and the sins that have all emerged from the world and the flesh and the devil, not to mention to be allowed to live in the church. So you put it all together and certainly a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The old leaven leavening the new is certainly potentially disastrous for the whole. Like Achan's one sin that cost the entire nation. So he was cast out and his family of sorts, pretty dramatically. Like Jonah's sin that cost the boat. So he was cast out. Did you know that Jesus' cleansing of the temple is all connected to the Passover? The, The casting them out, the cleansing, prior to celebrating the new. Look, we know that in the ark of God's word, the sin of one or some potentially threatens the whole, including the church, then 
and today. So what strikes maybe 30 minutes ago as cringy, a cringy part of Christianity, because we're, we're talking about kicking people out, removing people, and then this, this language of handing them over to Satan. It's like, do we, does that happen in this society anymore? Is that really acceptable? Isn't that just like the height of, of unloving in what seems to be such a pluralistic and inclusive world that we live in? But no, when you understand the heart of God and when you, you see the, the implications of this on the gospel, it is crucial and necessary and commanded by God that those who claim to be born-again believers in Jesus Christ, who actively and unrepentantly proceed in sin without being correctable, without repenting and turning, with no sense of fight in their heart against it, and sorrow at grieving God, the church has a responsibility to remove such a person. Now, some final instructions from the prescriber. You remember we, we mentioned that. He does say, I wrote to you this already. In a previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of this world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. Using others to advantage yourself in your own financial position or as an idolater loves the created thing more than the creator, as a reviler, a drunkard, unstopped, accepted, Wasted all the time, no conscience, or as a swindler, thief, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have with judging others? Is it not those inside the, the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And then he quotes the Old Testament, purge the evil person from among you. So, of course, Paul's not talking about not associating with unbelievers who have no power from God inside to hate and kill sin, God will judge outsiders, but we are here to judge those who are inside the church, who, who call themselves brothers and sisters. And again, I, I want to be really clear, and I've tried to be clear, that I do believe that Paul is speaking here not of temptation of, and sin, not of fighting and failing. Look, a righteous man falls seven times, but gets back up. Look, we all experience the sin that so easily entangles us. And we have powerful good news in, in, in the blood of Jesus Christ that washes us and cleanses us. What can wash away our sin, brothers and sisters? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, which is available to us. And we fight against sin. And there's a war between the flesh 
and the Spirit. Not talking about that, that next day when your conscience is burning because of the failure or the falling or the sin. And before God, you, you present yourself and, and say, I'm sorry, I hate this about me. The sin that so easily entangles got me again. And I, I know that there's reasons for that. And I, I, I ran through the yellow and red lights that have existed in the past to try to stop me. But Lord, I'm, I'm telling you that I'm sorry, and I don't want to do that, and I don't want to be that. Will you please forgive me? See, that's, that's the pattern of the Christian life until one day in a new heavens and new earth, there will be no more sin. Isn't that one of the best parts of Revelation 21? Can you imagine what that's going to be like? That's not what 1 Corinthians 5 is about. That's the, 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 the whole of our New Testament is a gracious Christ who meets us in those places of battle and says, I have resources and power and my spirit available to you to fight against sin and to put it to death. And even if you take two steps forward and five steps back, there's always forgiveness in my blood. I paid for all of your sins on the cross, past, present, and future. They're dealt with. So come to me, draw near to me, repent and receive forgiveness of sin. That's not what this is. I think this is that seared conscience, that, that participating in these sins, the, the bold, active, unrepentant, maybe even flaunted, because of your arrogant attitude that God isn't going to do anything about this, or because of your arrogant confession of what you think Christian freedom means for you, in contradiction to God's word. Look, we're talking about the one who is in sin, practicing sin, not listening to correction, and not even repenting. Paul says, don't even eat with one like this. Again, most likely meeting, eating the Lord's Supper together. So what do we do with all this? I agree with you that this is a bit heavy, and, and there's more to come in 1 Corinthians, right? He's addressing issues in the church that, that sadly aren't just foreign to them in the first century. They exist certainly among us as well, but, I, but this, is, this is recorded and preserved for us, inspired by the Holy Spirit to instruct us as a church today to learn that the church of God is holy because she is indwelt by Christ and called and empowered for holiness. The true people of God have at the, the core of their life and heart Jesus Christ and a desire to live for him no matter how well you think you're doing or how horribly you think you're doing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is our status before God is based on what he did for us. And we walk with him and fight for holiness. Be holy because I am holy. We learn that church discipline exists because of sin. Listen, lowercase d discipline, it happens all the time. As we confront sin and repent and receive forgiveness all throughout the church and over and over till Jesus returns, we should lament any unholiness that ex exists among the people of God, and yet it does. 
And so we should apply the gospel remedy, the grace remedy, which is repentance and forgiveness. It's like a constant washing. There is grace and repentance. But then capital D discipline, it's, it's not a function of just the presence of sin, but is necessarily necessary because of unrepentant sin. Therefore, arrogant sinners actively involved in unrepentant sin should be removed from the church. And I think it's, it's crucial for us to know and, and maybe for you to know that as a, a church, we do practice discipline. We have seen the process go to the active removal and excommunication of members of our church for serious and unrepentant sin. We have also alerted large portions of the church to that reality when it has happened. But we've also seen people repent and respond to discipline and be restored by the grace of God. So as we close, I think it, it would be good for this to be sobering to us. Sin certainly is serious and it always destroys, but as serious and sobering as this should hit us, we shouldn't stay there. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We have a Savior who came to destroy sin and to give us power over sin. Power that begins with the full forgiveness of our sin. We have a Savior whose, whose mercy is infinite, infinitely more than our sin. We should look to Christ and to his mercy and his grace. Doesn't Paul say that? Christ is our Passover lamb. He is the one who died for us and has given us his grace and we are safe from all judgment inside of him. And more than that, we are given power to overcome sin. Sin never has the last word when it comes to Jesus Christ and his gospel. So while discipline is necessary and while this should sober us, we should all rejoice in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen? Because where we are weak, and when we sin, he gladly forgives us. The thing that I'll say as your, your pastor and your friend, in terms of a, a direct application to this particular scripture, don't ever get yourself kicked out of a church because of unrepentant sin. And I'm not joking. Like there, there's, there's a, a warning in here for us to continue to take our sin seriously, to not find yourself in su such a self-deceived place where you're not listening to anybody, where you're not listening to the voice of the Spirit inside of you, where you're not seeing clearly God's word. Don't find yourself in a place where you are actively and flagrantly sinning against God's clear command and maybe even flaunting it to those around you. Such that you, you begin a process of potentially outside and turned over into the realm of a destroyer who wants nothing more than to destroy you. And the question is, well, how, how can you and I avoid that? Well, I think that there's, there's a call in here to just embrace the grace of repentance. It's such a wonderful grace. 
There shouldn't be a day that goes by if we believe that we genuinely are sinful because of indwelling sin. That, that means that we're going to sin against each other. We're going to sin against God. And you know the remedy that God has provided for us that's like taking a shower every day is to simply confess our sin to the Lord. And he's faithful and just to what? To forgive us. And if we just confess our sins to one another, have you lost the grace of repentance in your relationships? Do you just quickly go and say, you know what? I am sorry. That was wrong. I sinned against you. Will, you. will you please forgive me? Which gives the other person that opportunity. Of course, 70 times 7. If I've been forgiven this debt, how can I choke you for that little bit that you sinned against me? And in that process, grace has entered your heart, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and power to be cleansed and to be clean. Right? Like this is, this is what, what God offers to us as, as a hope. Like, how many days would you go without a shower? How many days would you go without brushing your teeth? Like, these are pictures that show us that there's this ongoing invitation to washing and cleansing. And if you don't, then you might find yourself so crusty in sin that you can't even see straight anymore. I think that there's a, a call and an invitation. To, to see the warning and the seriousness and to avoid it by the grace of God. Amen? Let us press on. Let us fight against our sin. And not if we sin, but when we sin. Let's go to Christ. Let's go to one another. And let's be washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus that washes us white as snow. Amen? Let's pray. And worship team, you can join me. Lord, we thank you for your word. We're, we're grateful to... To, to track through each part and to hit sections like this that we know exist in your heart for, for your church, for this church, and for each one of us. So Lord, I just pray that you would accomplish your redemptive goals today through your word. Lord, and I pray that if there is anyone currently outside of Christ, that they would come into the knowledge of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, through your love, through faith in you. I pray that for someone now, they would, they would give their life to you, that they would be like that person finding themselves under the blood and safe from your judgment and wrath to come because of what you did for us. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. It's always with us. In Jesus' name, amen.